This is the thing about the article that really drives me crazy is that like they're they're holding up the DA and the DOJ as you know these people that had the answers and and were prevented from 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 implementing them when in fact it was the, it was complete it's completely backward. We've always known what the solutions are. We've been prevented by law enforcement from implementing them. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hey, Narcotica listeners, Zach Siegel here, broadcasting from Chicago, Illinois. I'm stoked to have Jeff Dini on the show today, who is going to help us dissect the ideological basis of a new Washington Post investigation into how the Obama administration failed to tackle the illicit fentanyl crisis. This juicy expose happens to be based entirely on disgruntled sources at the DEA and DOJ who truly hated the Obama administration's reformist agenda. So we, believe it or not, have some problems with the premise of this story, and we're going to be talking about the Sicario-like fantasy of supply-siders who really wish they could be unleashed to, uh, I don't know, just lock up more dealers and magically watch fentanyl disappear off the face of the planet. So we're going to unpack this juicy story on the show right now. Nobody loves a cop, man, as much as a liberal journalist does. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I mean, and, and I've, I've like, I have ideas like why that is. You know what I mean? I think that most people that go into journalism have pretensions of themselves, uh, you know, being writers, you know, uh, you know, above and beyond, uh, you know, reporters. And so they think sort of like in terms of, story and narrative and you know they like gritty anecdotes and they want things to be cinematic they and, want characters cops are great right, characters yeah uh, yeah i mean characters uh, you know uh, all over the place and so you know and, and and cops will give you that i mean you know i mean most cops are characters and most cops you know talk um you know uh, uh, you know they're a little rough around the edges uh you know they you know they they're 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 gritty and and it, and it's um, it's sort of like a crime novel, right? Like that's kind of like how I think a lot of writers think, in terms of like you know when they do crime reporting, that it should you know it should almost resemble crime fiction, uh, in a certain sense. And so they want to hit that 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 narrative, that voice they want to have present in the story. Um, and and so if you want that, you got to go hang out with cops. And the thing that they don't realize. Which and this like this frustrates me to, to no end is that um, like any time that you're talking to a cop, it's political. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's an ideological, uh, you know, position that you're absorbing every time. Every time you talk to a cop, the, because I mean, they are they are essentially you know performing an ideological job. <laughs> you know that that's that's what that's what cops are. Um, and so, you know, it's very easy for police, uh, and law enforcement agencies to propagandize via the media because the media is so receptive to it without realizing that it's propaganda and very rarely steps back to, to make that analysis. You know what I mean? That maybe this isn't just, 
um, you know, just, just information, information offered in good faith uh, by somebody who has, uh, you know, access to information experience that, that I don't have. You know, that like, um, like I think for, for years, for crime reporters, like the gold standard is like, you know, it's like the ride along. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know, and that, and then, and this Washington Post story, they, they flip it around, you know, and, and do the, there is a ride along. The photos are generated through a ride along with, with, with fire uh, um, responders. And so that, like, they're still kind of working from that, um, that ride along kind of uh, mentality, but not realizing that, like, when you're riding along with a cop, you're getting that cop's perspective of that community. You're not, you're not hearing the voice of the community. You're not speaking to people who actually live there, people who, uh, you know, experience the policing there. You know, you're getting the cop's viewpoint. The cop is taking you places that he thinks uh, are significant. You're just seeing the neighborhood through his eyes. And that's, that's not a neutral position. So, Jeff, you're coming out of the Kensington, Philadelphia harm reduction community and, you know, I've been reading your work ever since 2012 when you were, you know, writing for The Fix. And, and I think, you know, so you're a social worker now, but you're based in Connecticut, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we moved to New Haven. Um, my wife's a doctor, so she... Uh, Sugar mama. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it ain't nothing I do going to pay for the two kids that I got, so... So you're a, you're a badass social worker at this point? Is, is that where you're at? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I've been, I mean, I guess I would start a little earlier than that and say that, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a former drug user and, and I've been in recovery for a long time now. Um, and, uh, after I got, uh, into recovery in 2004, um, it took a little minute to get my life together and then went back to work around 2006. Um, doing sort of direct services uh, type social work, uh, very much at the street level, working directly with, um, you know, people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, people with severe mental illnesses, people who are using drugs. I spent six and a half years working in the criminal justice system, um, which is when a lot of that stuff that I was uh, writing for The Fix um, was, uh, was produced at that point. I mean, I was, I was working mostly with like young, um, drug sellers, uh, hustler kids, uh, a lot of whom work, uh, in Kensington, West Kensington. Um, and so it kind of was going back to this neighborhood. I spent a lot of time in, uh, when I was using drugs, um, you know, many years later doing sort of, uh, service work and then activism also, uh, you know, around, you know, creating more humane, conditions for drug users. So over the years, from your perspective, how have things changed for the worse? You know, you like, look, man, anytime you bought a bag of dope on the street, you never knew exactly what you were getting. Um, you know, but the options used to be like, you either got heroin or you got beat. You know what I mean? And those are a relatively predictable set of options. You, like, you can navigate those in relative safety, I think, compared to like, well, this bag is all fentanyl. This bag is heroin and the heroin's weak. And then the next bag is like a fentanyl heroin mix uh, with some horse tranquilizer thrown in it. You know what I mean? Like that, like that stuff has 
users on the street just so turned around. So that's what I want to talk about now, how illicit fentanyl has taken over the market. And you've witnessed this firsthand, as have I, but the way we have seen this play out is utterly at odds with the Washington Post piece headlined, The Fentanyl Failure. The subhead does a lot of work here. Despite mounting deaths and warnings, the Obama administration did not take extraordinary measures to confront an extraordinary crisis, comma, experts say. So those experts are the DOJ and the DEA, and they're pissed off at Obama. But look, we don't think the Obama administration truly took on fentanyl in a substantial way, whether by policy or legislation. Like, yes, they freed up money for naloxone. They wanted to get more treatment going. They signaled that medication treatment was important. But this WAPO angle is that Obama failed because he didn't listen to the DEA and the DOJ. He didn't let them enforce hard enough. If only Rod Rosenstein could have gotten those pesky dealers. So I want to unpack you know, how much their version of events differs from what the knowledge on the ground is, from what you've seen, which I find to basically erase a lot of the advocacy a lot of the work that harm reductionists have been doing on this for years. I, the, the thing that really strikes me is that, like, the, <laughs> I mean, we're even still talking about this, man. You know what I mean? Like, I, uh, look, man, in 1995, <laughs> you know, I was buying dope at Third and Indiana in West Kensington in Fair Hill, uh, you know, in the barrio in Philly. And there have probably I would I would say between now and, and 1995, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of bodies that have been pulled off that corner, you know, arrested, prosecuted, flipped, you know, pursued as uh, informants. What you know, whatever, man. You could walk up to Third and Indiana right now, this second, and cop dope. You know what I mean? In fact, if Chris was on, he could probably tell you what the stamp is <laughs> that's going out there. He'd probably tell you what's in in the back. You know what I mean? Because it's it, it's that 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 corner has never stopped selling dope since you know the '90s up until today. It's never been shut down for any appreciable amount of time. So so that's like this idea that like you know the fentanyl epidemic got out of control because they they wouldn't let us arrest enough people is just so that's just so staggeringly ahistorical and just disingenuous and propagandistic because that's so crazy because in every single neighborhood in Philly where drugs have been sold tens of thousands of people have been arrested you know and and all that we've ever had is no interruption in supply whatsoever and increasingly uh, potent and unstable uh, supply lines of, of drugs coming in as a result of interdiction efforts. Didn't the price of bags also go down? Yeah, that was crazy. And that, that, that's crazy, right? So, so the deal was that around 2013, 2014, um, there, was, uh, there was a bag that hit the streets in Philly called um, Only Five. Uh, Chris actually posted a picture of it 
uh, you can still look it up on Twitter. He posted a picture of him. We were talking about it back then, right? That the word on the street to me that, because I was working with a lot of drug users at the time, was that only five um, was the first bag that was, it was all, it was, it was said to be all fentanyl. I don't know if anybody ever tested it, but it was said to be all fentanyl. And it only cost five bucks. So that is a huge departure um, from, you know, a decades, decades old uh, selling practice of, you know, uh, moving, moving dime bags, dime bags being the uh, basic unit of a dose of heroin. It cost 19, 1995. It cost me 10 bucks uh, in 2005. It cost you 10 bucks. Um, and then suddenly in 2013, 2014, there was this bag came out. It was only five bucks. And to me, I couldn't, I, like at first, you know, I had some ideas about what that was that like, you know, because first of all, if it's pure fentanyl, I don't know that users were really, I don't know they really wanted that at that point. Like, if, you know, I know that, I know that it packs a, a lot of punch, like the rush is supposed to be uh, exquisite. I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, but, but it's got no legs as the, you know, users say there's off, you know, you know, like an hour later, you're sick. That's, you know, I mean, it's hard enough, man. Be, you know I mean? The, you, you know, Zach, you had a habit. Uh, yeah. you know how this goes. I mean, it's like, it's hard enough living your life in, in six hour increments, let alone think about living it in two hour increments. Uh, you know, so, so I, I, I think that, you know, there was this uh, attempt at first, I think to, to see if you could undercut the market, right to introduce the fentanyl to sort of see um, how users would receive it. And, you know, I would say that, you know, my um, first thought, I, I, back then I thought this is it. Fentanyl's just going to eat the whole, the whole market five years from now, ain't nobody going to be buying any heroin anywhere in the city of Philadelphia. But really it's, it kind of leveled off at like users seem to prefer a mix and 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 in the big cities, there are distributors who can still get heroin, right? I think the further you get away from the metropolises, so you you have this huge OD problem up in uh, New Hampshire. Like for for instance, New Hampshire is the subject of the Washington Post article, mm-hmm. and I think a big part of that is because they're they're so far away from Philly, New York, Boston, um, that by the time you get up there, I mean it, it really is just just fentanyl. I mean there's there's really not many people moving. Uh, heroin all the way up to these remote parts uh, of the country. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, this is a theory that Chris and I have talked about uh, recently um, that, you know, he could, he could fill you in on in terms of his ideas, like that, that there, there are, there are wholesalers that have more clout with people in the islands um, down in Mexico who can, who can still sort of demand that heroin be, be shipped, to, you know, so they can be mixed with fentanyl. Um, well, because they don't but, want to kill customers, and it seems like it's just like a bad experiment gone wrong when you start introducing like carfentanil or some crazy, stupid, potent. Right. So, well, let me say this, man. So, I so back in back in uh, I guess by this point it was like twenty early twenty fifteen. Um, I was running uh, a buprenorphine maintenance group um, in in the next neighborhood adjacent to, to Kensington. So it was all people just coming off the avenue um, to get. Uh, to get on subs. And one of the guys in my group, it was, you know, a Latin dude, old head who'd been around, he's my age, you know I mean? He's been around since the nineties, um, you know, user, but who sells, uh, you know, he, he's owned corners in the past. Like he's been, you know, he's been a fairly substantial 
drug dealer in the past. Now he's kind of, he's more of a user. He's on the skids a little bit. Um, but he, he can still get, he can still get dope and put it on a block, you know, from time to time. And he, and he uses like, he's been shooting dope for, you know, 20 years now. And, um, and so like this guy was telling me, he, he, you know, he, he was, he was, he was going back and forth from, you know, he takes some subs some days, but then when days when he would use, I mean, he, you know, he's kind of dude, he'd be doing two, three bags at a time. And he was down the way and got offered just a nickel bag, you know, as a sample, like duty news uh, hooked him up with this sample, this, you know, this nickel bag, uh, that he didn't know had fentanyl in it. And, you know, this is a dude who's been shooting two, three bags at a time. Does this, it does his nickel bag and just falls out. You know what I mean? It falls out, you know, in, in the Chinese store on Kensington Avenue, you know, wakes up, they stripped him. You know what I mean? He wakes up in his underwear. He's got no shoes on, took his watch, his wallet, you know, and he's, and he's back in group on Monday ran about like a nickel bag, a fucking, a fucking nickel bag. Like I fell out on the Avenue from, from a $5 bag. Like he was just, he was, he was incredulous. Like he just couldn't wrap his head around the fact that he caught this, this nickel bag that, that just so surpassed his tolerance that, that he actually fell out. And so, yeah, I think when you talk about like that idea of like an experiment uh, going wrong, you know, I, I think that, I think that that is, that is a fairly apt description. I mean, you've got, you know, such wide variability now in potency, you know, from bag to bag to bag that I just, it's, it's so hard to use safely uh, nowadays. You know, one of the ironies I think is, uh, when I was, when I was young, I was an IV drug user, but you know, I got some, some absent times in, in, in my twenties and in my later twenties, I came back and I was using oxys instead of dope. And you know, the, you know, that, that's the irony is that like, I mean, oxys are the safest thing comparatively to use. I mean, it, it was, you know, I, I may in fact owe my life to the fact that Oxycontin uh, was so widely available when I went back to using because it was just so predictable and safe in terms of, unless you were really just using recklessly or mixing it with other, you know what I mean? I think a lot of oxyodes were, were multi-farm ODs. You know, if you were just using oxys, like, you know, you, you were pretty safe in terms of OD risk. And, and I, I say that all the time. So like I got off everything around 2012 and that was before the market totally changed and that was shortly after oxycotton was was you know reformulated and so like we're talking a lot about the the demand side of this problem and just the end user you know getting totally fucked over in this market transformation but like back to the the DEA side of this thing the the piece quotes Rod Rosenstein the DEA of, you know, head of the DOJ or the assistant attorney general saying that, you know, law enforcement efforts were like, quote, declining while deaths were on the rise and that federal drug prosecutions per the Obama holder agenda fell by 23%. And, you know, what, what they're saying is like, it's because we didn't prosecute enough dealers is their main gripe here. And, and the Washington Post is pretty much just presenting that as a fact and like as a given, like, oh yeah, of course you're supposed to prosecute 
drug dealers during an opioid crisis. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, okay, these, these corners have been open for decades and, and I don't know, what does prosecuting the, the, the small fish or whatever, like, like, I don't understand like what the supply side uh, argument is to try to disrupt the illicit fentanyl market. Like this is a needle in a haystack kind of problem. What kind of extraordinary measures is the DEA really gonna do? Oh, exactly right. That that's that's that, that's the the craziness of the story is that like like there was nothing the DEA was ever going to do that was ever going to move the needle on OD rates. And now the flip side of it, which I think is is worth saying, is that like you know a lot a lot of stuff that the Obama administration did do or did not do also. Uh, did not really move the needle on that. They didn't do a very good job. What what you were know, they doing? It was like more beds, more treatment. Was that their sort of rallying cry? So, so I think if you unpack it, I think that you know there was a focus on doing more of stuff that doesn't work, right? For ODs, basically, you know, increasing the number of beds, uh, you know, funneling you know more money to the court programs. You know, let's get more vet courts started up. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, but there was some stuff that they did that I think does work. They just didn't do enough of it because the priorities were so split, even, uh, you know, on the Obama side between all this enforcement based stuff, uh, that, that doesn't work. I mean, they did expand access to naloxone. Um, that was good. Uh, they did expand access to MAT. They knew that, uh, you know, having MAT, especially in environments like, jails was was critical this this is sort of like the big uh falsehood underlying this wapo uh article right is that like we didn't know what to do you know what i mean like nobody knew what to do like man look this article focused on you know concord new hampshire okay philadelphia is not concord new hampshire okay philadelphia has had periodic spikes in ods fentanyl driven for years you know what i mean back into the 2000s that's that's always been a thing in philly um and not only that but we've known forever ever ever since heroin and jail has existed like we have known that dudes come out of jail they catch a bus on state road in philly they ride it down to the frankfurt transportation center they hop on a subway. It takes them down to Kensington, Somerset. They get off. They walk down to B in Somerset. They cop a bag of dope. They go in an abandoned building, and they overdose. Like that's, that's happened hundreds and hundreds of times over the years, going back many years. So this idea that like we didn't know that, it's, that people are more susceptible for overdose coming out of jail, that's patently false. I mean, of course we knew that. I mean, what – it's not that fentanyl was – was something new and unprecedented. It took all the things that we already knew were bad and risky about heroin and just elevated it to this crisis kind of stage, right? It just, it just, it just maximized, you know, all, so, so, so now you're seeing more ODs of people coming out of jails. You're seeing more ODs of people coming out of detox. We know that people OD, uh, more likely OD when they come out of detox. So you're seeing that more because the potency of the supply has increased. 
and so this idea that like nobody had any ideas uh, to put on the table is 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 just crazy. I mean, the Obama administration put the 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 MAT in jail uh, solution on the table, and you know what? It only just happened in Philadelphia. We just recently uh, got uh, a buprenorphine program and a jail that's a, that's allowed to do inductions. You know, we've had we've had methadone in the prison for a long time, but you had to be a, you have to be on a clinic when you get locked up so that they can get your last dose information. They won't in, they won't induce uh, okay. you know somebody on methadone in 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 jail. So you know we just got that years later. Why? Not it wasn't Obama's fault. You know what I mean? It's because the jail is resistant to doing it. You know what I mean? And this is the thing about the article that really drives me crazy is that like they're they're holding up the DA and the DOJ as you know these people that had the answers and and were prevented from 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 implementing them when in fact it was the, it was complete it's completely backwards. We've always known what the solutions are. We've been prevented by law enforcement from implementing them. You know what I mean? Like we could have had a safe injection facility in Kensington back in 2013, 2014. We we knew I, I was writing about it. you can look at my story. I wrote about I wrote about it in the Atlantic uh you know in 2014. And it's 2019. And the DOJ just sued my friend in Philadelphia who is now the executive director of the safe injection facility that wants to open up and can because law enforcement is putting their foot on the neck of this facility that we need. That's the stuff that is going to move the needle on overdoses, locking up more 17 year old kids from the barrio, you know, who don't even know, they don't know that they're selling you fentanyl heroin. You know what I mean? They, they don't know what's in the bag. They didn't bag it. They didn't cut it. They're just out on the corner moving it to you. What you just said, Jeff, is like the the exact point to, to take away with is that it's this perverted inverse. It's saying that the the DEA and the DOJ, they're the ones who weren't able to, I don't know, enforce hard enough to, to tackle this problem when really the DEA is still regulating methadone and buprenorphine in absurd ways. They're the ones suing people who want to, or threatening lawsuits to people who want to open up supervised consumption facilities. So all of these things that like actually measurably impact overdose deaths, they lobby against. So I don't get how the word harm reduction or methadone or buprenorphine are not at all said once in this story. They do mention naloxone. They, they talk about spending money on that, and that's really important. But all those other interventions go completely, completely absent in the story. Yeah, let me let me just say this, man. Like, it, everybody knew what was going on, man. Everybody that I knew, that I was working alongside in Philly in 2014, we knew what was going on with fentanyl. We knew the supply had changed. It wasn't going back and it was killing people left and right. We knew what we needed to do to try to stop that. We did what we could. The Philadelphia, the government in Philadelphia, the local government was, was on this. And I posted th those receipts on Twitter. You know what I mean? 2014, they were sending me 
uh, you know, maps of fentanyl deaths that they were making on their own. They weren't waiting for the CDC to try and come up with some kind of mapping system or surveillance system. The health department was doing it on their own. They were sending Chris, Chris was doing it. <laughs> Chris was doing it on his own and talking to the health department in Philly about it so that they could have that information. You know what I mean? So we knew what was going on and we had, we had the solutions on the table. You can't tell us that like, like people were slow to react. We've been pounding the table for five years. And this is the important thing, man. This is what pisses me off about this article. Those bodies aren't on us, man. Those bodies aren't on us. At the, at the height of this, dude, <clears throat> somebody at the medical examiner's office in Philly sent me a picture. I never published it. You asked me not to publish it. It was just a picture of the medical examiner's office of just bodies just stacked, stacked up like cordwood, man. Like you couldn't even walk. There's that many bodies stacked up in this picture. You know what I mean? And you think that, like they, they didn't know what was going on? Oh, well, what's going on? They knew what was going on. I knew what was going on. You know what I mean? And that could have that, that been prevented. I think this is a good place to wrap up because yeah. what, what you've been saying is, is really what I think a lot of people listening to our show have been feeling and it's like their efforts, all their cries are being erased from the conversation. Unless you're, you know, wearing a suit and walking around the, the marble floors of the DOJ, you're not part of the Washington Post story. Yup. They never contacted me. And and they ain't gonna and they ain't gonna contact Chris either. Jeff Deeney, thanks man. Thanks for coming on the show. Bye man. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Muraff, Troy Farah, and me, Zachary Siegel. Our theme music is from Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or check out our website, narcocast.com. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe and donate to us on patreon.com slash narcotica. We couldn't do this show without you helping and supporting us. You can also give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the show. Till next time.